welcome to another Scottish documentary podcast. My name is Rachel Stollery and today we will be listening to the highlights from a masterclass with the great director Riley Grunewald. Riley will be talking to us about her documentary feature The Short Break, which follows a long-running standoff between corrupt pro-mining forces and the Pondo South African coastal community. Riley takes us on a journey through her process as a director and gives us some insightful tips on how to make a feature documentary. Okay, The Shore Break is a 19-minute documentary, uh, so feature-length, that was shot and produced in South Africa. It's a South African production, although um, I'm now living in France. I, I finished it just before I moved to France. It took about three and a half years to make. Uh, that's from like research all the way through to like finishing post-production. And yeah, it, it's started out as a sort of political thriller and then ended up having like really strong human rights and environmental themes in the storyline. It basically follows the story of two cousins who live on the most spectacular part of South Africa's coastline called the Wild Coast which is a very underdeveloped part of South Africa. And they end up having a, a family feud over what they want to do with their land because they have completely opposing ideas about how they want to develop their land. The one cousin is like sick and tired of the poverty of the area. He wants to you know, join a mining company to mine the area for titanium and allow the government to put this like massive tolled highway through their land while his younger cousin is a, sort of an environmental activist and completely against these ideas. And she's more interested in sustainable types, like sustainable development for the area, um, which she thinks would be sort of more beneficial to a larger group of the people who live there rather than just a couple. The, the story sort of focuses on this family feud between the two cousins, but the subplot is that the South African president has dethroned their tribe's king and queen who are against uh, this mining and highway project and replaced the king with, his, uh, with the king's nephew who is pro-mining, even though the South African government is not supposed to interfere with traditional monarchs. Um, so, just a little bit of kind of snippets about the film. It's started off its uh, festival release uh, at IDFA, which is, um, do you guys know about IDFA at all? It's probably, yeah, it's probably the, the largest documentary specific uh, film festival in the world, with hot docs being the largest in North America. Um, so we kind of aimed for that to be our sort of first festival to show it. So that's one thing to think about when you are wanting to, to you know, release your film. Kind of try time it. You, I mean, because there's all these rules about how old the film needs to be and when you finish it and as to whether you're allowed to enter it into a certain festival. And most festivals want uh, the bigger festivals want a world premiere, uh, whereas and then at the very least a festival is going to want like a national premiere. 
So just kind of bear that in mind when you're releasing your film to do a lot of research on the, the, what festivals are on at various times of the year. And you know, you, you can't just sort of apply to all of them. It, you, it's, you need to think carefully about which festivals going to appreciate the story elements that are in your film and what is going to be good for uh, also the, the marketing and the promotion of the film. But by having our world premiere at ITFA and then going on to Sydney Film Festival and then Hot Docs, uh, we were able to get like a lot of great publicity that brought attention to the film for other film festivals and sales and so yeah, it's just something to bear in mind from the beginning, from when you're doing your research and your development of your projects. In terms of student projects, there are plenty of festivals that have like prizes specifically for like best student form. Like I know ITFA does that, for example. Um, so that's something to bear in mind when you're making your films to kind of aim for that. Uh, yeah, the show breaks sort of, I think on its 14th, country in terms of festivals and uh, it's been translated into several languages for that and then uh, broadcast in, in Canada and yeah I'm going to go more into the actual story development and what sort of things you need to think about when you're starting to start your own projects which are a lot better to think about from the beginning and not halfway through. Um, Okay. All right. I mean, everyone has a different way of how they come about finding the story or finding what story they want to tell in a film. And I think one of the most important things is that you, you need to be incredibly passionate and excited and dedicated to whatever subject matter you choose. Because if you aren't, no one else is going to be. Um, I uh, absolutely love this area of the wild coast uh, in South Africa. My grandmother grew up in that area, and ever since like the Second World War, when my great uncle was posted on the wild coast to look out for German U-boats, our family's been coming to this area for holidays. So to me, it was like an absolute paradise. You go there and there's just no one on the beach except for cows and it's just unbelievably beautiful. So when I heard that this Australian mining company wanted to just like pitch up and mine 22 kilometers of the beach for titanium and the government wanted to put this like six lane highway through the land, I just was pretty horrified and I decided to that wasn't the point that I decided I'm going to make this film. I thought, let me investigate this. Let me, make, let me find out if it's something worth investing a lot of time and resources into. So I guess the point with that is, you know, like similar to dating, unless you sort of like a lot of short films, you've got to really be selective and choose very carefully what, what sort of long format form you're going to do. Um, mostly because it takes often like a couple of years to make a film, especially when you consider how much time it takes to raise the money and then 
once you've actually finished making the film, that's, it's not over. You need to invest almost as much time and money in making the film or in, in the distribution and the marketing of the film as you do in actually creating the product. So, yeah, I, I guess when you find something that you think, okay, maybe this is a great idea, maybe I should make a documentary on this subject matter, think, think, is this something that is going to sustain me, like, intellectually, for a couple of years? Will I still be excited about this, you know, two years down the line? Uh, will, I, will I be willing to give up a lot of my time and uh, missing important events in my personal life to, to make this happen? I think um, how I decided to actually make the film is I, I went on a fishing trip with my dad, who told me about the mining in the highway, uh, on, on this estuary, which is like a pretty famous estuary for uh, like where giant uh, or specific fish that comes from Mozambique, they breed in this area. It's like the only area in the world that they, they do that. Uh, and the highway would have this massive bridge like over that gorge. <laughs> so I came here to check out what was happening. Um, our tour guide was Nontliam Butuma, uh, the woman in the photograph. And I got chatting to her. She explained to me that she was a sort of tour guide, but also a youth leader in the area completely against these developments. And she was just a really like hectic lady. She was just so intense and uh, she had death threats against her, yet she was like completely determined to carry on. And I found her a really compelling person and subject. And, I, and I, at that point, I realized that she was compelling enough for, to hold an audience. I think the same way that you cast a feature film, you need to cast a documentary. Are your characters or subjects interesting enough, dynamic enough, complicated and, and layered enough to be able to hold people's attention? Especially like in this day and age where most of us just like, you know, read things online on our mobile. We, we don't really dedicate a lot of time to doing one thing. We just jump from one thing to the next. So like even sitting down to watch a film, a lot of us won't just sit down and watch a film for the sake of it. You know, it's going to be pretty good. Um, and then she told me that her enemy was her own like first cousin and that the president of our country had dethroned her queen and I was like wait a minute this sounds it doesn't sound real it sounds like a story like a like something out of Shakespeare and it was sort of that moment that I realized okay this is going to be an interesting story and I think because I'm my sort of day job or you know it's, up until that point of being a freelance cinematographer, it was just even more appealing that the visuals in this area was like breathtakingly beautiful. It was just so easy to have like beautiful backdrops. And that was like a major drawing card for me. So, yeah, I think another important question to ask yourself is like, why do you want to make this film? 
like is it just for the sake of you know it's a requirement for your studies or is it something you know I think it's important to know what your goals are before you make a film because that's going to completely determine what kind of film you make what sub what type of subject matter and it's going to affect like your financing plan and everything if you're wanting to make like you know a really commercial film that has wide audience appeal and will make a lot of profit you're going to go very different approach to you know a passion project that might have a more limited audience appeal and attract more sort of grant funding so yeah i think it's important to know that from the start like what what goal do you want to accomplish with your film All right. Another important question to ask, and even though you know you might be doing a student film and you're not so worried about the financial side of it because you're focusing more on the artistic and technical merit of your films, like once you finish and you want to be making films professionally, and for those who already are, like filmmaking is a business. It's it's not like an extension. I mean. It's a lot cheaper to go and paint a painting than to make a film for your own personal pleasure. Um, ultimately, filmmakers make films for an audience. Uh, we're making films to entertain people, to meet a need in, in the audience. Uh, not our own, well not only our own sort of personal goals. So a question you should be asking yourself is, can this film that I want to make actually be financed? Is there someone out there or some, you know, whatever type of, you know, whether it's an individual or an organization, whether it's an institute or uh, a brand, like who is going to actually be willing to put money down to help me make my film? And then you you've also need to ask yourself, and if nothing comes through, what then? Am I still going to make the film no matter what uh, because often in the feature film industry like narrative films which the background that I come from you pretty much always need to like complete your financing before you start shooting whereas in documentaries that's sort of <coughs> ideal but the way that funding works you often can't do that because often a funder wants to at the very least see a trailer and often they want to see a rough cut so uh, you kind of need to, at certain points of the production process, be willing to work and not be paid, like, or at least in the first like couple of films you make, not throughout the whole process, but at, at different stages, to be able to reach the requirements of what a particular funder might need to give you the next tranche of money. I mean, obviously, it's not the case if you've been commissioned by, you know, HBO or whatever to make a documentary and they just sort of give you, like, millions to <laughs> make your project. But the reality is that doesn't happen very often and, you know, not to that many filmmakers. Another important thing <coughs> to kind of ask yourself in terms of like seeing your film in the in the broader context of the, you know 
the documentary market is you know is there a demand for the kind of film that I want to make and I'm sure like you guys are so aware when you when you're deciding like what you want to watch tonight like you you can either like go online and if you go into Netflix there's just like so much stuff to choose from uh, or you even go onto TV there's like over 300 channels to choose from so and in terms of documentary like creative documentaries there's a complete oversupply of content there's like way more films being made than there are like TV slots uh, being you know provided as a platform to actually show those films on television which even though that not you know less and less people are watching television these days it still is the main way that documentary filmmakers make their money through television sales because uh, video on demand which is getting more popular uh, it's not generating yet like the same amount of money that TV sales are so I don't know I, I'm sure you guys would be able to answer this question, but can can some of you suggest to me reasons why there is a total oversupply of documentaries? When you consider like technology today and way the way people you know the way we watch, the way we consume media. Any suggestions? <laughs> I think it's just more, more accessible now than it ever was for people to to get their hands on equipment and have a channel to be able to put something online that somebody can watch. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you can be like scratching your foot and make, like film it with your cell phone and like put it on YouTube. You know, it's out there for people to watch. <laughs> so, um, and that's exactly it. Equipment is a lot cheaper. You know, you, you can earn a, a DSLR and, and a laptop and you know, a radio mic can be able to make a film. Um, it doesn't mean it's going to be a great film, but it just means that Sundance and all the major festivals, as well as the TV broadcasters, like they can't even get through the amount of content that's coming their way. Um, so it just, if you want to make documentaries, just kind of be aware of that, that you are going to need to aim to be in like the top 10% or top 5% to to actually get yourself out there to to actually make a profit because it's a very very tough market and yeah I wouldn't quit your day job <laughs> like most documentary filmmakers that I know um, except for maybe 10 or 15 in the whole world uh, don't do it like that's not the only thing they do. Most of them supplement their projects with uh, other forms of work, usually in the film and television industry, whether they're working in commercials, which generates a lot of money, or they, you know, doing freelance work on, on dramas and that sort of thing. Um, I guess the, the most, a good sustainable model to aim towards is to be able to not just work on one project at a time but rather have like a slate of projects that are in rotation so while you are maybe in post-production for one you
you're busy developing like two others so that you're constantly you're not having these like large gaps where you're waiting for cash flow okay um, yeah other reasons why there's a huge oversupply of content is that less people are watching television so there's less money from the TV stations to actually pay the documentary filmmakers and I don't know if you guys have noticed okay but okay, okay maybe uh, you guys have Discovery Channel here right do you can you remember it from like 10 years ago in comparison to today no okay well like I remember when it sort of at least first came out in South Africa, it was a lot more, it showed a lot more like traditional documentary, creative documentaries, uh, things that actually made people think. Whereas, okay, I hope none of you work for Discovery Channel. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's a lot more sort of reality driven. Uh, the, the content, if you're watching documentary on on TV these days, the good chance is that it's sort of aimed for someone who's just come back from work, who's exhausted, who doesn't want to think too hard. They just want to lie on the couch and actually not think too hard. Um, it's usually these sort of series about, I don't know, ice truckers, that sort of thing. Have you guys seen that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Audiences needs are changing. I think the kind of people who want to watch content that really like uh, is demanding, that makes them think, that makes them question the status quo. Uh, it's either there's less people wanting to do that, or broadcasters are kind of forcing sort of more light-hearted superficial content on us. I'm not sure whether it's a chicken and egg situation. All right. I think one of the really important things that I noticed in the sort of early research phase, which is really important for, for you guys when you're doing your projects, is to focus your, your stories. Because you might think, okay, well, my subject matter is pretty, um, seems pretty specific to me, but while you're doing your research, you're going to come across so many like, different avenues and different ways of telling that story, different points of views. And if you're not careful and you try to cover like, too broad, too many perspectives, or uh, you might find that you waste a lot of time and money because you'll just end up throwing like three quarters of that out in the, in the edit. Uh, and you know, you'll also lose a lot of depth. Whereas if you just focus on a few specific themes and maybe one or three or just a, a smaller amount of main subjects, uh, you'll find that your story will have a lot more, more depth. And it's the same as like watching a, a really great feature film. If you, there's, there's not actually a lot of difference between documentary storytelling and screenwriting or I mean in screenwriting you can you can control what gets said uh, or what happens which in order to make it entertaining but in documentary you're dealing with 
depending on the style, what is happening in reality in front of the camera, and then telling that in a way that is, you know, hopefully as entertaining as watching any other feature film. Um, but in order to kind of have that focus, just like a warning that it can, that you can get a lot of pressure from the people who you're filming on what focus to take. For example, we decided to focus on Nantler and her cousin who was for this mining and highway developments. But in, I mean, in reality, it wasn't just Nantler who was spearheading this movement against this resistance against these projects it was like a whole team of people but we couldn't tell all of their stories and you know obviously people's egos get hurt because they're not getting filmed and there's all those sort of things that you need to deal with during production but it's going to be a lot better for your artistic storytelling as well as your sales and uh, for better for your audience if you make sure that you have good, fo good focus do you guys know much about like funding and how to get money to actually make your projects? I'm sure. Okay, I'll touch on that like a little bit later. But if you're wanting to deal with themes that are more sort of less commercial, like this film isn't exactly keeping up with the Kardashians. Um, <laughs> like it deals with a lot of more hard hitting. Uh, <coughs> subject matter and so it's appealing to a lot of uh, institutions who, who give grants and money in order for those kinds of stories to be told and what a lot of them require is like uh, an application that application usually consists of at the very least a say a two to three minute trailer a synopsis a treatment a budget and a finance plan. Those are, that's sort of like the basics. Um, have you guys written any <coughs> treatments before any of you? Like, no, okay. Well, basically a treatment is, in a nutshell, explaining to your funder or a broadcaster uh, how you plan, what kind of story you want to tell and how you plan to tell it, the style, the, the, the characters, um, Sort of writing in a, in a visual way what i'm sure yeah you'll probably end up having to do it in your course because it's like a major part of getting money to get your your stories told but the benefit of doing that even though it can be pretty like frustrating while you're doing it because usually you have to redo it every time for every single funder because they want a slightly different angle um, is that it forces you to really think hard about your style and, you know, to actually put it in writing is a really good exercise to, to make sure that you are well prepared and focused before you start shooting. It's just really going to be a lot of a waste of everyone's time and money if you just rock up and start filming without preparing properly. Okay. Um, the short break after say after we had done our trailer and got a bit of funding we were selected to pitch at the hot docs uh, forum i don't know if you guys have ever heard of that 
the Hot Docs is the, the largest North American documentary film festival. And as sort of part of their film festival, they have a forum where people can get be selected to publicly pitch their film uh, in seven minutes. It's usually like a three minute trailer and four minutes of speaking to say a room of, I don't know, maybe like a thousand people or so, or 800 people. Uh, and you are presenting to this like map, this long table of decision makers who are going to critique you after your presentation in front of the entire room of public who are there to watch. Um, and if you, when you are developing your projects, it's really useful to, to aim to, to pitch at that sort of platform for several reasons. I know there are also, I mean, most of the major documentary film festivals um, provide that kind of platform, like ITFA does in Amsterdam. And, um, but I guess the way they advertise it is that it's supposed to like help finance your film. Uh, in reality, that doesn't usually work out that way. I mean, we were able to get a Canadian broadcaster that way, but um, it's really good for the development of your story because you're forced to pre present your project concisely in a, in a small amount of time, um, and you immediately get all these broadcasters from you know all over the world, as well as funders from different organizations uh, who then you know, start interrogating you and pinpointing the strengths and the weaknesses of your project. And it's just an amazing way to get feedback from people who sit all day long and work with, you know, so many projects coming their way. But in terms of like your student projects, um, I think while you are busy developing your story, while you're busy developing your ideas and your style and how you want to make your film, um, even if you prefer to work on your own and to kind of just suddenly present your film, try see the value in consulting different people. Even if you don't take their advice, it's really helpful to hear what other people think of your ideas. Um, especially if you can find like a mentor, someone who's been in the film industry here for a couple of years to, to give you feedback because it can really make the difference between an, an average and a great project. Just someone who's got the experience and the eye to be able to point you in the right direction, to show you, okay, wow, that's, that's great, like focusing on that. Um, maybe that's, this isn't working, maybe drop that. You don't have to take the advice, but at least you're getting it. Does anyone have any questions at the moment? Yes? I uh, was just wondering, how, how can you pitch a project uh, like narratively if it's unfolding in front of you and you don't know how it's going to conclude? Yeah. Like, how do you even make a trailer if you don't know how it's going to end? <laughs> well, I mean, that's an observational documentary filmmaking, which is exactly what this yeah. is. Uh, you don't know how it's going to end until like, it happens in real life. Um, but you generally, in, in a public pitch, you, are, you generally need to present your general storyline, uh, your 
characters, the main themes, uh, a little bit about the finances. Um, and then in terms of the ending, if you don't know what the ending is going to be, you usually say what you think is going to happen. Um, but the decision makers don't expect you to know what the ending is because they're used to, you know, people not knowing. Um, but that's an interesting question because that, you know, you could have a whole separate thing on how do you end your film? <laughs> how do you know when to end? Because the story actually, you know, life doesn't just stop, it continues. You could have like 10 sequels. How long did it take you to get to that point where you had the trailer and you had, you know, an idea of uh, about six months, but it's not full time. At the time I was like studying, I was doing like a master's degree in film and then working on it part time. Um, but you need money to make a trailer. That's like a big obstacle. So I had to apply for development funding to be able to get a grant in order to hire a crew and go out and film it and edit it. Uh, but yeah, I don't know how it exactly works with funding in Scotland, but uh, generally the, you, know, you are able to find development funding, whether it's in your own country or, or elsewhere, uh, that enables you to do that. Otherwise, you just make a plan. I don't know if, you, if that's a South African slang or not. Otherwise, you just um, you make a way for it to happen. You know, if you're really serious about making a film, you're not going to let anything stop you. You, you almost need to convince funders that you, they're lucky to fund you. Like, it's a privilege for them to fund you because you are gonna make this film no matter what, and it's gonna be a great film. That's, that's kind of how you need to convince them because it's obviously really frustrating for organizations who give money to people who aren't that serious and then they don't actually follow through and finish the project. Um, so, yeah. So it was quite intense, like, oh, hang on a sec. Like dealing with two cousins because it wasn't as if they like lived in separate cities and they <coughs> never saw each other. Like they would, you know, they were at war with each other, but then, you know, seeing each other at the next wedding or funeral. They're living in a small, like, close-knit community. Um, so, by following two completely opposing sides, it was quite delicate because we had to get the trust of both of them, uh, with both of them sort of wondering whether we were favoring the other side. Um, one of the reasons we chose to focus more on the conflict between the cousins was because we, we did a bit of research into what films were out there that were similar to our topics and we found that there was like a huge amount of films actually on issues around communities and mining and the majority of them focused on like the big bad companies who came in to exploit the, you know, the, the communities. And it wouldn't really be helpful to make another film like that when so many of them existed already. And to us, it was a lot more interesting, actually, that the conflict was not only within one community, but within a family 
but they had completely different ideas about what they wanted to do. And this conflict was not only ripping apart their community, but trickling all the way up to the South African presidency and their king and queen. Another way, um, like when you are deciding on the, you know, how to make your film, a very important point to consider is whose point of view are you taking? Is the film like a reflexive kind of documentary or self-reflexive where you are, it's from your point of view, where you are sort of the main, like driving the story, you are driving the story, or is it, you know, one or two characters? And that is going to really determine the style of your film and it's imperative that you know that from the start before you start shooting. Um, we sometimes have people say, oh, well, why didn't you, you know, focus more on the Australian mining company? And our answer to that is we never wanted to make an invest investigative style documentary. We were making a creative documentary with the point of view of the community. So unless the community took us to the mining company, uh, or the mining company came to meet the community, which happened several times, we didn't go to see the, the mining company on their own, uh, because it was the community's point of view. And that's just another way that you focus your story, that you don't get distracted by things that don't develop your main subjects. Because ultimately, when you're watching a film, whether it's a feature film or a documentary, you need to care about the main subjects. I don't know if you've ever watched like a feature film where like something really bad is happening to the main character, and you're like, well, you know what? I don't actually care whether he dies or not, so I don't care whether he loses his job or whatever the story might be, because you're not invested in that person. You don't. Yeah, you, you, you don't relate to them or you, you don't care. So if you don't invest enough screen time into your subjects, you risk having the audience not care what happens to your main protagonist and that can be a problem. Um, Obviously, you're going to have a preference about what sort of style you, you want to do as an artist. Um, but just make sure that you count the cost of your, your choice because uh, it can have an impact on you know, how big an audience is going to be interested in your film and it can have a massive impact into you know, how much money your film makes. Uh, I remember going to a dinner at the Berlin Film Festival with the European Documentary Network and I was chatting to a sales agent there who was listening to my idea because it was still in the early development stages and he's like you know what the way that you are going to like sell this film to lots of you know broadcasters is if you are you are like the, the voice of the film that you are in it and kind of holding the hand of the audience through this you know, culture that they've like, know nothing about. 
and what he was suggesting was because I'm white and it, almost like 98% of the people in the film are not, that European and North American audiences are not going to be able to relate to black subjects. And even if that was going to make the film more commercially successful, I just didn't. I was not interested in that. I didn't. The film wasn't about me. It wasn't about my opinion. It wasn't about what this community want to do with their land. Um, because ultimately, when it comes to issues of development, the people who live on the land need to decide how their land is developed, not some outsider or some filmmaker who's not even part of their culture. Uh, but yeah, the, the reality is, because I took that road, because that I felt was how I could make the film with a clean conscience, uh, it probably does have a, a less broad appeal uh, to, you know, to certain audiences. <coughs> but I can say that those kind of audiences are not my target market, so I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to make a film for someone who like has to have a white person in it to be able to relate to. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Access. <laughs> access is probably the most important thing to making a documentary because if you don't have access, you don't have a film. There's no good approaching a broadcaster or a, uh, a funder with this amazing idea and then you don't actually have permission or access into those people's lives or into a particular situation. Um, so just never make that mistake because they'll, yeah. To start off with issues of access, um, the, it, the Wild Coast really is wild in terms of like infrastructure. There are hardly like any, there's hardly any infrastructure. The roads that are there are so bad that you can't even drive on them most of the time. You need to drive like alongside the road, like on these massive rocks at say 15 kilometers an hour. Um, and these were some of the things that we experienced during our research phase, which is a really important thing to consider because it's going to impact how you schedule your production. You know, you can't just go on Google Maps and say, oh, to get from here to there, it's going to take this much time because actually you're only driving 15 kilometers an hour. Um, and we had to have a line item in our budget for punctures and for asking, like paying uh, local residents to pull us out of the mud like with their tractors because <laughs> that happens so often. <laughs> um, that was like the first time it happened so it was pretty bad. After that my driving skills improved. <laughs> but yeah I thought it was just gonna be like a shallow puddle but in fact it wasn't. <laughs> And this is an area where there's like no cell phone signal. You can't find anyone to come and pull you out. Uh, I didn't. Sp I don't speak <coughs> the language there. Uh, luckily, there was this really cool guy who lived nearby who 
managed to just like bring his dad's tractor and pull me out. Um, <laughs> Another uh, issue of access was that there's no electricity in that area. Uh, so obviously in a production you need electricity, you need to be able to charge your camera batteries, you need to be able to light the form if you're using lights. So we had to adapt all the ways that we normally do things. Um, we ended up staying in like a backpackers where they had these solar panels and every night we would charge our camera batteries and uh, batteries for boom and uh, we had battery operated lights that we would charge and when it was like rainy weather we couldn't rely on that we had to like use a generator another sort of obstacle that we, f we faced was that the film was in Isimpondo which is like a dialect of the Gaza language in South Africa which I don't speak myself um, so uh, Nantle was initially our translator, the, the main character of the film, because we hadn't selected her as the main character yet. And she was the only person in that area who could speak English to be able to translate what was being said. Uh, so when she actually became like the lead subject, uh, we just had to kind of make the film and not always know exactly what was being said uh, and you just find ways to work around it I mean the, the area is so remote that you can't you know there was no one else We've, we phoned universities that were like a 12 hour drive from this area and they didn't even have that language in their language school because it's such a like remote language we have we have 17 languages in South Africa and this language is not included in those 17. <laughs> we have 11 official languages. <laughs> so what we, but one awesome thing about documentary that I love so much is that like challenges often like point and push you in a direction that ends up making it a better film. Because I didn't always understand what people were saying when I was like filming a conversation it actually helped because I think people relaxed more. They, I wasn't interrupting or I wasn't uh, influencing the conversation as someone might if they understood the language. Uh, and so people would just relax and start saying things that just made for really great scenes. Just, uh, because when, you, when you're making a film about quite a heavy subject matter, you don't want to focus on that the, on the whole time. It's, like, it's pretty heavy going for the audience. You need like moments of humor and sort of light-hearted moments to allow the audience to get a bit of breathing time to escape, uh, to sort of recharge their batteries before continuing the battle with, with your protagonists. Okay. So yeah, it's a good thing to consider when you're making your films, uh, what sort of challenges are you going to experience in whatever environment you're filming in? I don't know what ideas you might have at the moment, but it could be so many things, you know, whether you're filming in a hospital or uh, whatever. There's all these rules around these environments that can limit your access or can 
raise ethical questions about how you go about things. And on that note, okay, when we were accessing to, to film with this community, which is the community af affected by the, the mining and the highway projects, meaning uh, their, their actual land was going to be affected. Um, there's certain ways that you have to go about it. You can't just pitch up and start filming. Um, there's ethics involved and just common decency. So in this community, it's very, you know, there's a hierarchy, there's a traditional leadership where the, the entire community comes together, uh, whether they're walking from like hours to get to a, a weekly meeting where they discuss all the issues of the community. And as you can see, all the men like sit around and then the women are sort of in the peripheral. Um, and the leadership uh, makes all the decisions after they've sort of democratically listened to, to everyone else. So we had to go to this meeting and be introduced to the entire community by Montclair. And uh, she explained what we needed to do. And then the whole community needed to decide whether they were going to let us tell their story. And luckily they did. <laughs> uh, after that, we needed to have access to the king and queen of the, um, of the Pondo people. So we went with Nantlet to visit the queen. And uh, fortunately, she gave us access to, to tell her story, which was, pretty, uh, which was pretty special considering what ends up happening in the film with, with the royal family. What did you actually say to them when you were there pitching the film to the community? I focused on the fact that I wanted to not, that I wanted to use like whatever they were saying to tell the story. Mm. This film doesn't have any voiceover or any scripted anything, mm. uh, which made it a lot more difficult to make because we had to make co you know, a coherent film using mm. people's natural conversations and using things that people said in interviews. Uh, but we use that as like, we really want this to be your point of view, even if it's like competing points of views, it's from your one community. So yeah, and I think the other aspect was, this is such an isolated area of South Africa that most journalists aren't gonna be bothered Mm. to hire a 4x4 four four, uh, and drive 12 hours and get stuck in the mud. Yeah. So they were really struggling with these issues of like their, their land being developed in a way that they did not want it to be. So they were quite, I'm speaking about the majority mm. of the people there, uh, they were quite pleased that mm. the film might be a way for their uh, their opinions to be heard. Um. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, <clears throat> what did you have to do about uh, sort of release forms and <laughs> things with broadcasting? Yeah. Is, is that is that a quite a big hurdle? Or is it Not big? really. I I guess the biggest hurdle was that people okay, like ninety eight percent of people in this area, uh, were not able to go to school they can't read or write um, and if they were able to go to school it was such an inferior level of education that 
they weren't able to like finish high school. Um, just because it's like hardly any resources, like teachers who can't even pass the exams themselves, like that sort of situation. Uh, so in terms of release forms, we had to ask uh, the main subject, Nantler, to verbally explain in their language what it was about. We made the release form like really simple, just like three sentences. And to explain what it was about and then because they couldn't do, most couldn't write, so we just used ink and thumbprints for their signatures. Uh, but we only we only did release forms if we like interviewed the person or they were like prominently in the form in a situation like this We got like a verbal agreement from people because it's a public meeting Yeah, so when you take that to broadcasting companies do you show them then the recording of everyone's becoming to the agreement? Uh, yeah, you can I mean you just need to keep that on the record. I mean we've got a file like this huge of release forms yeah. It was just like you just kept like 20 on you at all times, yeah. But that they, they become super important when people sort of change their minds. <laughs> so, in, in the case of one of our, um, okay. What do you say to someone when you're kind of presenting? There's quite a kind of you know, yeah, a big thing. Present someone with a piece of paper and a piece of sign. Yeah, what, how, how did you kind of <laughs> explain that, or, or how did your your guy? What did he actually say to them when he was trying to kind of put it across? Uh, just the truth. Like, I think you just need to be as honest as possible. Like, like I'm here to make, I want to make a film, I'm interested in making a film. Uh, are you talking about specific people who we wanted to interview or, or the entire community? Specific people, so you yeah. really need to get, you know, a signature and... Yeah. Well, we wouldn't, most people agreed. But some people didn't want to be in the film, and then you just don't film them. Like, like it's as simple as that. You you ask them right in the beginning, and if they don't want to be in the film, you need to respect that. So, yeah. What what are you how, if, um, you know what, what are you kind of actually kind of saying to them to kind of because it almost like you know presenting someone with a form can be signed here. But it, it, you know it almost makes you think you're trying to get something from someone. And I don't know, how, how do you kind of explain that, you know, you say the truth, but how would you kind of put that across? Um, well, I mean, when we explained that we wanted to tell the story of how this community were facing the, the challenge of, like, the, the best way to develop their land, yeah. and uh, most, the majority of the community don't want uh, a type of development to happen that's going to affect their homes, farms, graveyards, uh, traditional lifestyles. So uh, they were quite keen for the film to be made and quite keen to participate. Yeah. So we just explained to them they it would be really great if you were in the film. But to be honest, we focused on like not that many characters, so, and they all so uh, close, closely knit that, that if one agreed, they kind of were all in a group together and they all agreed at the same time. It wasn't like a big, a big deal. Yeah. But I think that the major buy-in from the community was that they really had a lot of faith and trust in Nantle, the, the main subject.
and because she was vouching for us, they were okay with it. Mm -hmm. um, and how we initially came in contact with her was that a social worker in Johannesburg, which is like the city where I was living at the time, uh, has a like a strong relationship with this community, and he introduced me, which is why Northlayer in the beginning was more willing to, you know, to work with the farm. Um, and just in terms of like ethics, uh, I guess really probably a really important thing is just when you're making a documentary as opposed to a feature film or narrative feature film, is that you're working with like real human beings whose lives continue after you finish making your film, and uh, you need to really question how you present them and how the film might positively or negatively affect their lives, uh, you know, once it's seen by people. Um, because that's going to be on your head, like, I don't know. There are, there are some documentary filmmakers who, who really believe that just keep rolling and be like a human being afterwards, but I don't personally agree with that. I think, yes, you need to capture everything if you can, but if you're not actually going to respect the people who you're filming, then it sort of goes against the entire ethos of documentary filmmaking from the, you know. Um, if I can give an example, um, like in this community, they have a completely different culture to mine. Um, so, and because I was on their land, on their turf, I needed to go by their rules. Um, I was the outsider and they were being kind enough to let me tell their story. So, you know, for instance, uh, it's incredibly rude in African culture to look someone in the eyes when you talk to them, uh, which is quite counter, like, you know, in my culture, you show respect by looking someone in the eyes when you talk to them. Uh, but here, if you're talking to someone who's older than you, you need to like look down on the ground. Um, and those are the kind of things that you need to try and learn about and find out from people within the, the community who you're filming with. Um, just to, just out of decency. And, but the, the other thing is that you, you also have to be aware that you are completely, that you'll never <coughs> actually get that right, but you have to at least try. You are going to be ignorant, just but, but, but be aware of your ignorance. For example, it was only like a year after, like six months after finishing the film, that I learned that it's incredibly insulting and disrespectful to ask a grown man in this, in this culture what their name is. Uh, like you can't say, like, Hello, how are you? What is your name? And I, I had been doing that the whole time. I didn't even know that that was like super rude. Uh, but you, you're apparently supposed to wait until they like offer you their name. But, <laughs> but yeah. Do you, do, you, do you not think sometimes that's also the advantage, you know, obviously to have that, have that slightly, uh, that outside of you, I suppose, that brings something to it as well? 
Yeah, I, I guess um, you might uh, try to put the story into more like context for audiences who might who don't know anything about this group of people because you you're explaining things that you know they don't understand. But I think I think there's something super special about telling a story when you are actually from that area when you speak that language mm -hmm. because you have an, a, a depth and understanding that. No one else does, I think. There's pros and cons to both. Like, because I was an outsider and I didn't speak the language, people kind of forgot about me in the, in the mm. corner, which allowed me to just sort of get the, mm. capture like arguments and stuff that broke out. Mm. Um, but there are other things that would have been really beneficial if I understood. For mm. example, someone might say something and if I understood, I'm maybe it would have been a trigger, okay, you've got to start rolling now. Mm. Whereas I was predominantly relying on the few words that I understood mm. and facial expressions and tone of voice uh, and a little bit of information that I was getting from people around me to, to know when to start and stop rolling. Mm. Okay. Just in terms of like getting access to your main subjects, because those are the people who you, who are going to be investing a lot of their emotional energy and especially their time, which in documentary isn't usually financially compensated for, um, depending on what kind of documentary it is. Uh, there's questions around, well, how do you get access to that? Um, the reason why, I mean, yeah, the, that was an interesting issue, like, people wanted to know, okay, well, if you're going to film me, are you going to pay me? Okay, first of all, you know, we didn't have budgets to pay people, but the reason it was tricky to, um, to pay people was that because it was whether people were for or against the mining, we didn't want to be in a situation where uh, people would say, okay, well, you paid that person to say that for or against the mind. <coughs> it could like undermine the integrity of, of what they were saying. Uh, so we tried to help in other ways. For example, uh, you know, hiring people from the community to work on the production, uh, you, you know, trying to use like local accommodation and uh, taxis or uh, we ended up hiring some uh, two other translators during the production and then when we won the first prize in Paris which was like a monetary prize we used a portion of that money to to buy a gift for the community we asked them what they wanted and they said they wanted like one of those like massive tents for like 300 people um, because that's something that they could use to for weddings and funerals which is sort of the main social events for their community and they could hire it out and raise money that way to, uh, to support their resistance movement because most of them don't have regular jobs to actually pay for all the resources that they need to, to fight against these massive this, this mining company. Fine, okay, we've got access to the person who's against these projects, but how do you get access to someone who's 
for them uh, because they're obviously going to be a lot more suspicious. Uh, and initially we were only following like the people who were against these projects. But what we realized is that the story was becoming like really, like it wasn't balanced. Uh, and there was, we started to hear things that she was saying that we didn't really feel comfortable with. For example, she was, um, she's so, I guess, fearful of the mining happening because it would like destroy their homes, their ancestral graves, their farms, uh, and the potential for ecotourism, which would last a lot longer than like a 15-year mine. Um, she was so fearful of this mining that she didn't want to admit to any any weaknesses of their current situation. Uh, for example, there's one point in the film where she says, like, you know, we don't need anything. We have land, we have shelter, that's that's all we need. But in reality, a lot of people from her community don't want to be unemployed. They don't want their child like to have to walk four hours to get to school and then four hours to come home every day. They don't want their child to die because they can't get to a hospital on time. And those are sort of issues that uh, we realized Madiba or Zambila Gunya, like Madiba's his sort of clan name or nickname, um, her cousin, that he was bringing up these points that were actually like pretty valid arguments. Um, so it became more and more important for us to, to have his point of view as well. Also because, uh, especially if you're not from that community, you've got to be careful not to romanticize poverty. Uh, to sort of have this idea of, oh, it's such a beautiful landscape, you just must leave it the way it is. And, you know, let the people who live there just carry on how they are. They can just stay unemployed and because it's, it helps me to have a nice holiday destination every year because there's no like big highway going through their land. But yeah, so we, we, we realized that these issues of development were a lot more complicated and that it was so imperative that we actually get Madiba's points of view. Um, however, a lot of people had tried before to get Madiba on camera, but he had like absolutely refused. He was not interested, he was like very suspicious of journalists. Uh, but what we found was after filming with Nonchay for a couple of weeks, he started to get a bit jealous of like the attention that she was getting and that she was sort of in the limelight. And he's quite like a charismatic, dynamic personality who, who really sort of steals the show when he walks into a room. And uh, after a while he 
after filming him in, in, a, in public settings, he became more willing to be on camera. Uh, how are we doing for time, by the way? That's Got about half an hour. This is like the first time that we ever got Medivh on camera. Uh, basically, just to give a bit of context, the mining company has already come to see the community on their land, on, on the community whose land would actually be affected. And now, to kind of get fake support, the mining company is going to, to areas that uh, they know they'll get support because the people there want jobs, but their actual land won't be affected by the mining. Um, and because of the way the laws are, are, they can get away with that. They can like get no from the people whose land is actually affected and get like 10 yeses from 10 communities who are like 100 kilometers away. Because, the, yeah, it's a bit of a messed up situation. So the, um, we went to go film the mining company talking to this outsider community we knew Nantlea was going to be sort of spying in on the situation and lo and behold, Mediva arrived uh, because he had actually become like a, a financial partner in the mining company with the idea that he would help the mining company to convince the community, the affected community, to accept the mining. Things started getting like a lot more interesting when Mediva came into the picture. Uh, and to sort of, I mean, he was just such a like charismatic person, even though we had been warned that he was this really dangerous man, we couldn't help but like really like him, <laughs> spending time with him. And he was just like so, like he just had such attitude and, you know, he was a self-made man who, although he had come from this like really impoverished background, he had like was the successful businessman and um, he was just, he spoke so confidently of why these this mining project in the highway would really improve like life for his community, bring jobs and bring all this infrastructure that was missing. So what ended up happening is that I as a filmmaker kept like changing my mind whose side I was on. I would spend time with Nantley and be like, yeah, yeah evil mining company, Mediba's like the devil, and then spend time with him and sort of kind of start questioning how I felt about him. Um, and that was a good thing. I think it's when you are present making a film for an audience, there needs to be there needs to be like complications. There needs to be um, contradictions. Uh, if you watch uh, like cartoons, often the, the characters are very two-dimensional. You'll have like the goody and the baddie, but like real life is not like that. I mean, uh, and it's important that when you are casting for your documentary, that you find subjects who are complicated. Your protagonist needs to have weaknesses and your, you know, in this case, initially Madiba was our antagonist, but then we started wondering, is he actually because of the sort of 
good points that he had. Um, and in the end, we actually gave him like the last word of the film. Uh, as the film is ending, Nonche says something and Mediba says something and we, a lot of funders or people who watch the film is like, well, why do you give him the last word? Is he really representing the majority of the community? And we decided to do that because although his motives might be questionable, he still was representing the fact that this community do still need roads and hospitals and schools. And we weren't as outsiders wanting to make like this romantic idea about what it's like to live those things. Um, the sort of turning point for me personally was um, at a time when I was still filming alone, coming to this area on my own. I was filming with Nantle and uh, her, there was like this emergency and one of her neighbors children fell ill uh, the little girl's like eyes had rolled back in her head and her her mouth was like clamped shut she like didn't know who she was or she couldn't speak and no one in that area like has cars uh, obviously they they don't work they can't afford such things and to get to a hospital takes it was a sunday so the cl clinic which usually takes two hours to walk to was closed so the next option was to walk to the next clinic, which is like five hours walking, including going through like this crazy massive gorge um, where a lot of people drown from crossing from flash floods. Uh, so yeah, I needed to just stop working and uh, take this girl to the hospital and she ended up dying. Um, and that was like a massive turning point for me when I, I started questioning like wait a minute like this is real like it's not just about like the pretty landscape and the environment and like when people can't even get their kid to the hospital like is there at some point that you should just allow the mining to come or is there some kind of compromise that can be made um, which I won't talk about what conclusion I eventually came to because that's in the film. Uh, but yeah, just the fact that at the end of the day, people need to have a choice. Like they can either carry on like living a traditional life or if they want to, they should be able to go to university or get a job. They shouldn't be like forced to do one. Okay, so yeah. Just make sure that your main subjects have contradictions in them, that they're not just like all dark or all lights, that there's, that you raise questions while you're making the film, that the audience changes their mind about things the way that you should too while you're making the film. I mean, I don't know how much you know about South Africa, but obviously like John Clark is <coughs> in his sort of early 60s, he was sort of in his prime during apartheid. He was, uh, you guys all know what that is, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was basically like a political system that completely oppressed people who were not white in South Africa. Where uh, if you were not white, you were made to live in like really 
horrible areas, you were denied a decent education, you were only given like petty jobs, uh, you had, you were completely like uh, oppressed in every way. Um, and here, after like many years of apartheid being over, John Clark, who, although he was not for apartheid when he was younger, he is still a white man, so he still, whether he likes it or not, benefited from the system. Um, because he was able to go to a good school and benefit from parents who were able to be well educated and have decent jobs. So with him coming in as like a white outsider and telling Madiba like that he's the problem uh, was it's just a little bit questionable because um, and I kind of like the way that even though Madiba was sort of the naughty subject or the, the, the mischievous one, he was like speaking some truth. Um, okay, fine, John Clark is not staying in a house that's like super rich, but yeah, he does. He did send his kids to a better school than anyone living in this area could. Um, And that is like another reason why I, as a filmmaker, was very like aware of the fact that because I'm white, uh, I didn't really have the right to to put like my opinion in this film too much because uh, it was not my land that was in question. It was really important that you know the the people whose land is affected, that they are the ones who decide what happens to their land. And, yeah. Okay. <coughs> Probably like being like flexible and being able to adapt to different situations is one of the most important qualities you can have as a documentary filmmaker. Because uh, compared to productions for feature films, and it's, it's a way less controlled environment in every single way. Like from cinematography, you can control the light beautifully in a fiction project, whereas in this sort of film, when something's happening in like ugly lights, if you don't film it, you're not going to get it. You can't like ask for it to happen again. Uh, and in the same way, you're dealing with real people, not paid professional actors uh, who will arrive on, like, at their call time and do what they need to do. And in the one afternoon we had scheduled to have a meeting with Madiba and for about the fifth or sixth time he just cancelled last minute. That was his, after he sort of lost interest in being on camera, he started like avoiding us and um, instead of just saying, oh, I don't want to do this anymore, he would schedule an appointment and then just drop us like 15 minutes before. Uh, I think just to play with us really, he sort of enjoyed doing that. Um, so we were in a situation, well, I was in a situation where I was like with a crew who had been paid uh, with equipment that we had paid for, staying in accommodation, like a lot of resources had been put in and now we didn't have, you know, access to Madiba that day. So what were we going to do? 
Um, so you just have to kind of come up with other ideas. And we decided to try to capture a bit of life in this community, which is quite difficult to do because as you can see, it's not like European or Western towns where all the houses are close together and everyone sort of congregates in streets or shops. And like here, people's houses are maybe like a kilometer apart. So it's not easy to get groups of people together unless they're at those big public meetings or like a wedding or a funeral. So we went to one of the local taverns, which is called like a Shabin. I saw there's like a Shabin restaurant. <laughs> Shabin means like a, it's like an illegal tavern where they often, in, in the rural areas like this, they sell homemade brewed beer, which, yeah, it's like the local bar for the people living here. Um, and we just started hanging out with this group of people who were having some beer <coughs> and uh, we packed up, we went to the backpackers where we were staying, it was about two kilometers down the road and as we arrived there were these like holiday makers who were staying at the backpackers, they had come there for a fishing trip and they were talking about the same issues that the people in the Shabin or the tavern had been speaking about, except they were like two kilometers apart but in completely different worlds that were so like far removed from each other. The first were local people uh, talking about yeah, the, what impacts these projects would have and then in the backpackers you had these sort of white middle class middle aged men talking about what they think the local people might be experiencing um, yet they just if they're so close geographically and maybe happening half an hour apart in, in real time. Yeah, it was just an amazing experience and it just worked really well in the edits, especially knowing that they had actually happened on the same day, like so close together. Would you guys, okay, I'll just wrap up. Um, one thing in terms of documentary, which I was discussing earlier, is that like often it's pretty like heavy topics and like ultimately you're making your film for an audience to watch and to enjoy <coughs> and to hopefully be entertained so it's like if you can't make a comedic light-hearted entertaining documentary at least have some scenes in your film that are funny um, or not necessarily like slapstick comedy but just touches of humor it really goes a long way to uh, make it a more palatable like enjoyable film um, yeah I guess it's uh, sometimes finding the comedy within the tragedy uh, but I can say that when we've, we've spent a lot of time like in people's houses forming their natural conversations and that's when like the funny, more comedic stuff happened, uh, when people are relaxed and they just, you know, and maybe forming like an hour's worth of conversation, like a really great, like one and a half minutes sequence would, would come. Um, you guys, 
to be more interested in hearing about like working in small crews or like animation? Okay. <laughs> all right. So I'll sort of end with that. Sorry we didn't get to like all the financing and outreach, but I didn't realize. <laughs> Two hours is quick. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Initially, I started like filming on my own simply because I couldn't afford to pay people. Um, so I, w I basically shot the film on like a DSLR with the intention of like shooting on an Arri Alexa, but. <laughs> The reality is when you don't have electricity or like an, enough electricity and crew to back up the size of the files that you're working with, it's not actually the most practical solution. So, uh, particularly because we would work a 12 hour day, which is the normal working day in South Africa on, on set, uh, unless you're in a commercial. Uh, and then I would spend like another five hours backing up that day's footage onto like three backup drives. Just because, yeah, uh, you can't just put your phone on one drive in case it crashes. Um, so there were lots of pros and cons to working in, in, in what we would call a micro crew. I mean, usually I came from working on dramas and features where like in our camera department alone, we would have like 15 people. Like, you know, just have one person handling cables and then a focus puller and then a whole lighting department and a whole grips department. And then here we were with just, like I was on my own. And then eventually when we got some funding, we got a sound recordist. And then we hired an intern from the, the nearest university who I trained as a camera assistant. Um, and I, I, I think it worked well because uh, not only for economical reasons, because you have to consider accommodation, like salaries and all of that. It really allowed us to to keep the profile of the film like very low key, because it was just me and like a DSLR and two other people, and a few sort of you know the rest of our equipment. We we did not come across as threatening to the mining company, so they completely did not take us seriously at all. They just thought, oh, it's like this little girl with her camera. And um, that helped us a lot to not have any resistance to filming things that they might have thought twice about if I was you know, there with a massive crew. Um, it also helped us to get more like intimacy with the main characters, you know, when you, when you you know, ultimately you're following someone's emotional journey through the, through the story and uh, that's difficult to, to capture when you've got like an entire massive crew listening to someone's like, you know, deepest, darkest moments. So, yeah, I think working in, you know, in your student projects or in, in documentary, it can be really great actually to work on a small team. Was it all shot with the DSLR then? Uh, I'd say like 90%. Uh, we shot a little bit on the red, shot a little bit on like a Sony uh, F3, like in the beginning development stages. But uh, when you're filming for like over three years and you need the equipment at the drop of a hat when something happens, uh, we actually needed to own the equipment. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
Questions? Anything to wrap up according to what you guys? Yeah. Um, how is it uh, technology wise? Um, like, how did they respond to the technology? The community? Uh, well, I mean, I think that they had seen like other sort of news crews come over the years for like short little pieces. So they were kind of used to cameras being around and I mean then they're not although they're isolated they're not like uh, you know they still travel to nearby towns to do their shopping and uh, so they they were fine with it um, yeah I don't think they like although they, they don't have the luxury of owning televisions or or such technology there it's not a big deal for them to to see it yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Has the community seen the film? Yeah, they were the first people to see the film a few months before <coughs> the premiere. Or was it just uh, um, your, your lead character that it was everyone who We first showed it to her, okay. then we showed it to the royal family, okay. and then to the affected community. Uh, I think I've got a photograph of it actually. Uh, like that's when we, that's like their meeting hall every Thursday. So we showed it to them. And it was like a totally different experience of showing it to someone who's not, whose lives aren't immediately affected by it, you know. Uh, you might watch a film and consider it from like an artistic point of view or how it makes you feel, but to them that's like their, their lives. And they, after they saw the film and they just launched into like another meeting, like all fired up from what they had seen and hearing gossip that the other side had said about them that they didn't know about. And <laughs> So, yeah. Is there anything else? Yes. Obviously, we had touched on animation. Um, what yeah. made you feel like you had to include animation in the film? Uh, basically, there were some really important events that happened before we started filming, like years before we started filming. We didn't want to do reenactments, so I was looking for a device that could show events that happened in the past in an interesting way. and. Many years before, when I was still at film school, there was this uh, animator, or a girl like a few years below me, who was an amazing artist. And she uh, had done a sand animation project as a student project, which had won many awards. And I'd always like kept that in the back of my mind. So I just thought the fact that the, the mining that they wanted to do on this land was with beach sand, and she does her animation with, with beach sand. It was just like a perfect fit. So we were able to raise budget to to do those past scenes through animation. Yeah. Alright, thanks guys. Yeah. There are plenty more documentary podcasts available online on our SoundCloud page, www.soundcloud.com forward slash scottdoc. If you would like to watch the masterclasses with clips, then please head on over to our website, www.scottishdoginstitute.com.